celebration, and Grace has reason to celebrate today, and so we're going to have her share that with you, and we're going to celebrate with her. You like to celebrate? I like to celebrate too. Come on. You have to come all the way over here, or the people at home won't see you. (laughs) This is a different view up here. Yeah, it is. (laughs) This is way different than the church, but yes, I have great reason to celebrate, as Pastor Tom has said. Um, As many of you know, I suffer from depression and anxiety. And yep, Christy, this is this is you looking at me. I see it. Um, I, I believe it was October twenty eighth, twenty six years ago, two thousand fifteen. I was um, released from a very behavior health. So six years ago, and things have been going great. The medicines have been doing what they're supposed to do. Um, I do ask um, for prayers because it does seem that my depression and anxiety goes in a six-year cycle. So I feel that I just need to be uh, lifted up so we don't hit another Mm -hmm. six-year cycle. I can Mm -hmm. go seven, eight, nine more years without having to go back in. So I love that. Amen. Hey, let's do it right now. Let's pray first. And so, Father, since we're in your throne room right now, we just ask, God, as Grace has humbled herself, and said she needs your help. Holy Spirit, finish the work that you started. God, we trust you. We give her to you, and we break this cycle of depression and anxiety in her life. God, that once and for all, she would have peace, that she would have hope, that she would have joy. Holy Spirit, give her everything that she needs for life and godliness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, celebrate. All right. Well, let's just dive right back in then, shall we? Um, we have been in a series. We're using a book by, um, I should always remember his name, John Ortberg, <laughs> called The Life You've Always Wanted. If you've not picked up a copy, um, I don't have any today. They're coming tomorrow. Remember when Amazon used to get us stuff in two days? Wasn't that fun? <laughs> but uh, they're coming tomorrow, and so they'll be here next week. But have no fear, because we're going to be reading it all the way through August. So you got plenty of time to get caught up. We're only in chapter four. The first three chapters were basically just the introduction. This is a book about spiritual disciplines, but it's probably a little bit different than maybe you're, you're used to. In fact, maybe you've never even heard of the discipline of celebration, but that's what chapter four is about. And the, the introductions, chapters one, two, and three, were all about the hope of transformation, that God sent his son into this world to be to transform our lives, to bring us back to his original design for humanity, to rule and reign with him on earth. His kingdom come, his will be done. For you to release it everywhere you go, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your home, at at the store, in a restaurant, just everywhere you go, you're just depositing the kingdom. You are ruling and reigning with him. Kingdom come right into this situation right now. And so that's what this book is all about helping us to see it. Because for some of us, it's not about receiving something. It's about just changing the way we think. I mean, we are so ingrained in patterns of thought that just need to be transformed. 
And when we start seeing the world from a biblical point of view, the way we talked about last week, the inexpressible and glorious joy that is available to us because of the living hope we've received through Jesus Christ. We have to start seeing the world through that biblical mindset. And that's what we covered last week. And so if you've missed any of these sermons, um, if you've missed any of that, uh, all of it's available on our podcast, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel. You can find it and uh, you can read the chapters on your own. But just as a quick recap, um, I believe that I have put uh, these on the screen for you. The seven things that we're working on in the month of November as we practice this discipline of celebration, just doing things that you enjoy. For goodness sake, just do something fun and enjoyable. I mean, I know life is hard and life is serious, and sometimes it doesn't seem like there's time to do something enjoyable. Stop it and just do something enjoyable. Pursue joy each day. Find a joy mentor. Find someone that's going to help you practice joy and not someone that's a joy sucker. Um, pray for joy. Set aside one day a week to celebrate. Unplug from media for a week. <clears throat> We're getting near the end of November. We better get started on that one. And then discipline your mind to view life from that biblical perspective. And so those are the things that he covered in the chapter, the study guide in the back of the book. But today, we're going to look at another passage of Scripture from the Apostle Paul. Last week was Peter, the inexpressible and glorious joy. And today, Paul is going to talk about overflowing joy and rich generosity. Overflowing joy and rich generosity. And if you've got a Bible, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in a little bit here. But this idea of joy and generosity, this is who God is. We serve a gracious God. That's what Hebrews described him as. We can come into his throne room. He is generous. That word generous means liberality, sincerity, excessive. That's who God is. Is. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that he would call us sons and daughters of God, children of God. You think of the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, who comes all the way back with this nice speech rehearsed, God, our Father, just make me one of your hired servants. God doesn't just make us a servant. He doesn't give us just enough love to make us serve him. He gives us, he lavishes us on us. He says, I make you sons and daughters. You don't deserve that, but I'm doing it because I am generous. I do more than enough. I am excessive. And that's this type of generosity. And it's not just a theory that Paul is talking about. He is actually going to use as an example a living, breathing church. Now, we've never met them, but apparently there was a church in Macedonia back in the days of Paul that had this overflowing joy and rich generosity that was, people were talking about it everywhere. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and that's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> we're going to talk today in, with generosity about money, and I'm going to use some scriptures about money, but please do not limit this to money. This isn't just about money. This is about our serving this is about our time. This is about our kindness, our words. I mean, generosity is a lifestyle. It's not just money. It's every part of us. God is generous with who he is, and that's what he's called us to do. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, here's verse 1. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, here's that word, grace. 
Okay, that word that we've already talked about a little bit today, that word grace is the Greek word charis, and it can mean grace, it can mean gift, and it can mean kindness. And it describes our right standing with God. It's what God gives us that we don't deserve. Okay, mercy is he withholds what we do deserve. Grace is what he gives us. And grace is a gift. It's an empowerment. It's a, an ability. It's forgiveness. It's all of these things that are the grace, the kindness, the gift of God. And the interesting thing is, God gives grace to all of us. But Paul is talking about the grace he's given to the Macedonian churches. And as people of God, we believe that there's nothing impossible for God. I mean, if I would ask you today, hey, how many of you believe there's nothing impossible for God? I mean, I bet all of you would be like, yeah, I believe that. I believe nothing's impossible for God. And yet we turn around in our lives and we say, well, I can't forgive that person. I mean, God can't give you the grace you need to forgive that person? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I'm, I, I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying it's not something you're going to have to really um, receive grace for. But to say, I can't, or I can't be patient with that person, or I can't do this anymore, I can't. Is the arm of the Lord too short? What is it that you can't do? Well, yeah, by yourself, you can't. So if you still focus on you and your ability and your, your little circle, great. You're, you're right, you can't. But if you're looking to God, he can give you, as we're going to talk about, <laughs> more than you need. There's nothing impossible. So keep that in mind as we go through. Verse 2, here it is. In the midst of a very severe trial. Now, we don't know what's happening. Paul calls it a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy. Look what they have in the midst of a severe trial. Overflowing joy. I can't have joy. If you knew what my story was, if you knew what I was going through, how would you expect me to? Because we have a biblical mindset. Because we don't just focus on what we see. We know God's working in ways I cannot see. It's where I choose to set my mind. Their overflowing joy. This is what gets me. Look at this. And their extreme poverty. Welled up into rich generosity. This must be algebra. <laughs> because I don't understand this. I don't understand how you take overflowing joy and extreme poverty and get rich generosity. That doesn't seem like a, a very correct math problem. You see, but what happens is we think, well, I'll be generous after I go through this trial. Or I'll be generous once I have more money. Generosity is not about how much money you have or what trial or circumstance you are or are not going through. Generosity is about a position of the mind and understanding who you have been recreated to be in Christ Jesus. If you remember, Jesus was standing in the temple watching people put their offerings in, and the most generous person in the room that day was a widow who put in two pennies. How is that possible? I mean, other people put in large amounts, but Jesus said that was surplus. That woman gave where it hurt. That's generosity. Generosity is not about the amount. It's about the gift that's given. And if you give in extreme poverty, it may not look like much to the world, but God sees that as rich 
generosity. Because if you wait for the perfect time to give, the perfect time will not come. If you wait for the perfect time to serve, the perfect time will not come. If you wait till you have more energy to do more at work, that time will not come. If you wait for everything to be made right, you won't get it. And you won't get there. And the problem is it's cyclical. Because we won't take our thoughts captive and say, God has given me what I need to do this, and we don't start acting on it, and we don't start asking for the grace to do it, we stay in that pit of despair and that pit of poverty, and we can't ever break out of it. And we wonder why we won't break out of it, and we just long for Jesus to come back and set us free. And that's not what we've been called to do at all. That's not the picture of the Bible. In any circumstance, I can respond with rich, with rich generosity. I can't say, well, I've had a bad week. I'm under a lot of stress. Yeah, those might be great excuses, but I'm not going to make them anymore. I'm going to humble myself and say, I shouldn't have acted that way. I don't care what kind of stress I'm under. That's not who I am as a son of God. God has given me all that I need to act right, no matter what pressure point is being pushed by anybody, no matter what I'm facing. And so I refuse to give in to cynicism. I refuse to give in to the lie that says, you make me angry. I just refuse. And when I fail and when I make a mistake, I won't blame you. I'll take responsibility and say, God, help me. Give me grace. Because we've seen what I can do by myself. And it's not enough. I need your grace. But if you want to blame your boss, and if you want to blame your coworkers, and if you want to blame the people that work for you, and if you want to blame everyone else in your life, you won't get grace. Because God gives grace to the humble who admit their need of him, not to the proud who blame everyone else. Woo, we got deep fast, didn't we? But this overwhelming joy somehow mixed with this extreme poverty becomes rich generosity, excessive generosity. Verse 3, I testify, they gave as much as they were able. Now see, sometimes you have to actually do something. I mean, they gave what they were able. I, you may not think you're, you have enough strength to do what's being asked of you. Just do what you're able. And God comes along. When you start act, God, I, I can't do this without you. Give me grace. I'm going to start, but I know I'm not going to finish if you don't help me. And then just focus on what you can do. Don't focus on what you can't do or what other people aren't doing. Just do your part and trust that God is giving you the grace that you need to give to others, whether that's your service, whether that's your ability, whether that's your effort at work, whether it's your finances, it doesn't matter. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability, God? It's grace, but it doesn't come to those who won't act on it. You want to blame others, you won't get grace. You don't want to start, you won't get grace. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I don't know about you, but the church world today isn't full of people beating down pastor's doors saying, we want to serve, we want to serve, let us serve, let us give. That's not what this world, this is not the church in America right now. And something has to shift in our mindset. We are the richest nation in the world. We have more time than we know what to do with. We just don't know how to use it. 
We have more money than we know what to do with. We just don't know how to live within our means. We think we have to spend money to relax, and we don't know how to rest in the Lord. See, it's not my circumstance because out of extreme poverty, these people had joy, overflowing joy, and rich generosity. So tell me what needs to change in my life. My attitude. That's what needs to change. And this is a verse that we use all the time in the Assemblies of God for what we call faith promises and missions. And I want to pause for a second, and I want to do a little bit of a commercial for, for our global partners. I don't know if you know this, but in the Assemblies of God, we do not have a centralized missions organization or, or fund where we all send money and then they divvy it up and give it to missionaries. We have people that come and visit us as a church and say, hey, we, we feel like God's put it in our heart to go to this nation or this country or this state or this city in, in South Dakota and serve, whether it's on the reservation, whether it's an inner city, whether it's somewhere around the world. And God has called us to do that, and we want to be a part of that. And uh, would you partner with us? Would you pray with us? Would you give whatever you can give? And we have 35 global partners that as a church, Restoration Church, we partner with. We give $2,000 a month to support them all around the world. And I apologize to you because I have done a very poor job of getting them in front of you. And I could make all kinds of excuses, but this week I just said, Lord, I'm done with the excuses. And so over the next months and into the next year, you're going to start getting in the mail letters from our partners. You're going to start getting in the mail information about how our support is going and where our support is going and where, that, where, where we need to increase our support because these are not missionaries, these are not global partners that I support. These are ones that we support as a church. And I know that some of you are like, well, I wasn't here when we picked them up. But if God has called you here and you're now a part of Restoration Church, consider them your stepkids. And if you want to marry us, these are our kids. These are our partners. And we are supporting them in prayer and in finances. And every one of us needs to do something. You might give five bucks a month. You might not even be able to do that. You might give ten bucks a month. You might give a hundred. You might give a thousand. All of us are going to be at different levels of ability. It doesn't matter how much we give. It's that we give. It's that we start Oh, I would love to give beyond my ability. Well, are you giving according to your ability? Well, you know, I'm just waiting until I get that rate. Well, Pastor Tom, I could only give a dollar, and that doesn't, it doesn't seem much. The widow didn't stop putting in two pennies. She did it. And so I haven't done my part. I'm going to change that. And then I'm going to put the ball in your court so you do your part. That's what we're going to do. Because, again... I want us to be informed. We are the richest nation in the world. If you make $20,000 a year, 20000 you make more than 90% of the working adults in our world. That classifies us as rich. If we make, I mean, even 15000 puts us at over 80%. So we're wealthy. And there are, there's, Paul writes to Timothy. Look at what he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world. 
that would be those of us making more than fifteen to 20000 not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There's that celebration. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So generosity is about what we give, whether we tithe, whether we give offerings in church, but it's not just about that. I mean, generosity is seen when we tip at a restaurant. I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I hesitate to say this because I, I don't let this get out. Okay, this is just between us. If you're watching online, don't tell anyone. I tip more when I have bad service than when I have good service. I know, it's so weird. I don't know when I started doing it because when I have bad service, I'm tempted to give less. And so I don't give more for their benefit. I do it for mine. So I don't start thinking I'm better than them. I don't know why God put into my heart to do it. And I don't know why I do it. Because I feel like good service should get more. But I recognize that when there's bad service, there's a battle going on in me. And I don't want to do it. And so I give excessively to people who don't deserve it. Because that's what he did to me. Anyway, verse 5. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 8. T commercial over. Let's go back in. These people in Macedonia, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. Remember that we never give to people, we give to the Lord. If you put money in an offering basket at a church, and you have strings attached to it, and you have an expectation that people should do things your way because you're giving, stop giving. Because if you're not giving it to the Lord, if you don't put it in there and say, my hand's off, Lord, it's yours. If we don't give to global partners, well, those global partners aren't doing I'm not saying there shouldn't be accountability. There should be accountability. There should be accountability for how a church uses money, for how our global partners use their money, and the Assemblies of God does a great job making sure our global partners do that. I don't have to watch them closely like a hawk to make sure they're doing what's right. Because if I look for what's wrong, I'll find it. If I look for a reason not to give, I'll find it. But I don't give to them, I give to the Lord. And so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Verse 7, but since you excel in everything. This Corinthian church, they're a good church. God has given them a grace to excel in faith, a grace to excel in speech, a grace to excel in knowledge, a grace to excel in complete earnestness and in love. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. This is something that has to grow in us. Uh, you are not born with the desire to give. We are born with a selfish nature. And to break that, we practice the grace of giving. And we give to others and allow God to see it grow. We ask you to make a faith promise, not because we want to come to your door like a Gestapo and say, hey, you promised to give $20 a month and you haven't done that. 
But here's the reality. If you don't put it on paper and you don't say, God, here's the commitment, here's the covenant I'm making, I know that I can do this much and I'm going to trust you to do this much more. If you don't make it a goal on paper, how do you know you're growing in the grace of giving? That's why we do it. It's not about trying to manipulate or control. In fact, let's keep going. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you. I love that Paul says this. I'm not commanding you. I'm testing the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. That's bizarre, and I still don't know what to do with that. You know, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm just going to take you and you, and I want you to compare like you're giving so that uh, we can test how, how sincere you are. That doesn't really make sense. But again, if you don't put it on paper, if there's no covenant, there's no commitment, how do you know God's being faithful? How do you know you're, that God's supplying more than you need? How do you know, how does God know he can trust you with it? Does God bless those who give? Absolutely, it's in his word. But he doesn't bless, you to, bless those who give so you can spend more on yourself. He blesses those who give so we can give more to others. If you're faithful with little, you'll get more. And so as God sees us working, doing our part, saying, hey, God, I'm going to trust you for this. I'm going to go beyond my ability and ask you to work in my life. And as we make those covenants together with him and with each other, that faithfulness, God knows he can trust us with even more. Verse 9, you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So weird thinking of Jesus as poor, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He gave it all so that we could become rich. That's kingdom. I mean, we think the way to become rich is save more, hoard more, keep it for ourselves. And God's like, no, in the kingdom, when you're excessive, I just, flow, I just pour more in. And whether that's money or energy or service or kindness, whatever it is, generosity is who God is. Then verse 10, and here's my judgment. Hold on just a second. I don't know what happened to my battery, but it decided to die on me. So could you plug me in down there? Otherwise, we're going we're gonna to die. Praise the Lord for power beyond our ability right there. And so, I'm glad it gives me warning. It says low battery. Don't you wish our lives were like that too? <laughs> there are low battery lights, but that's a different sermon. Okay, so verse 10. <laughs> verse 10. Here is my judgment about, this is Paul talking to a church, about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work. Finish the work. So that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Okay, he continues to talk about this into chapter 9. So let's skip over to chapter 9, verse 5. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and you finish the arrangements for the generous gift you've promised. See, he's trying to get them to finish what they started. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Paul's not trying to force their hand here. He's not trying to get them to, to give out of guilt or obligation. 
That is so mistaken. If you're giving or serving today out of guilt or obligation, stop. Stop. And that doesn't mean stop giving or stop serving, but you have got to find a reset. Because if you give out of guilt, if you serve out of guilt, whether it's in church or at work or anywhere, if you're doing it out of guilt or obligation, you are poisoning your own soul and you're poisoning the people around you. It's true. And you will never find joy, overflowing joy in that. And you've got to find a way. If you have to step back from serving, if you have to step back from giving, if you've overcommitted yourself in some way, do it. Find that reset because you've got to find joy in giving or serving. And that's what Paul is telling them. I mean, I want you to finish what you started. But you have to do it out of generosity, out of a heart that is not grudgingly given. But remember this, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. How we treat others is what we'll reap. The mercy that we give, forgive as Christ forgave you because the way we forgive, God forgives us. This is a kingdom principle. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you are merciful, God is merciful back. Each of you should give just whatever you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Because God loves a cheerful giver. That word is the Greek word hilarious. Yeah, it's like hilarious. It means cheerful, merry, or glad. You have got to find that in your giving, in your serving, in your kindness, in your life. If you're not finding that, get into the throne and say, God, i got to find this. I, got, I can't live in this cynical way anymore. I can't live in this critical, complaining, oh, when is this ever going to end? When are things going to change? Never. Because what has to change is us first. Because our circumstances, even in extreme poverty, extreme lack, extreme lack, we can be generous. Oh, So that, well, look at this. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Did you catch that? Today, we have, at all times, all things that we need to abound in every good work. What's impossible? Nothing. Why am I not seeing it? Maybe my bad attitude. I don't know, as we've been going through this month of celebration, I've become painfully aware of how bad of an attitude I have. In little things, little things, they don't mean a lot. But can I tell you, those little things just suck the joy right out of us. And I feel like the Lord is saying, you know why you can't celebrate? Because <laughs> you have a bad attitude. Okay. And do you know what you're tempted to do? <laughs> Find someone to blame. <laughs> well, you know I have a bad attitude. No, nope. just not going to do it anymore. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I don't want people to look at me. I want people to be like, oh, look at God. That's the only way Pastor Tom could act like that, <laughs> is God. Praise God. <laughs> this service, verse 12, that you performed 
is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. In other words, not only is our generosity helping build the kingdom, but it's contagious. That's what he's saying. It makes other people want to do it too. There's so much more to talk about. Look at the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Paul says this in so many places. It's all through the New Testament. We'll cover as many as we can before I have to let you go. Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you, another church. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. <laughs> That's a bold statement. <laughs> because, I mean, it, it's hard to always pray with joy, isn't it? I mean, ever, do you ever, ever have a bad attitude, Paul? Come on. I always pray for joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And here's the thing I know. I know that churches have abused power over the, the course of history, and I know that they have put legalistic demands on people, and you need to serve, and you need to give this much. And we, please, It's not about legalism, but please do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because the church has done things wrong doesn't mean we run away from the church. The church is the bride of Christ. In all of her imperfections, he loves her. And he has called us to serve her and to give and to fellowship and to commit. He's called us to do that. Even in the midst of imperfection. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. People in church, Christian, they're not perfect. And when we look at people, we can focus on their imperfections, or we can say, God, I believe you're finishing the work you started in them. And we can bless them, and we can pray over them, and we can be humble, or you know, we can choose to live in the critical, cynical way that many believers have chosen to live. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you. Since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains for defending the gospel, confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I love this. David, all the way back in the Old Testament, fights this war, and some of the people were too tired to go fight. And so they stay, David's like, okay, you guys stay here with the stuff, we're going to go fight. And they go fight, and they get back all of the stuff that these other armies had taken from them, and they come back, and the men are like, okay, those guys that were too tired to come, they can get their wives and kids back, but that's it. 